We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. Episode number 60 of Lion Legacy, also known as the Halloween episode. A special time of the year for kids. And Ross, what are Evan and Julia going as for Halloween this year? After they change their mind about 17 times, which I'm sure most kids do that, Evan is 10 and a half years old and a little bit of satire, but he's got a big Elmo costume. Just because it, he thinks it's funny. He's like, I'm going to be Elmo. Like, cause I'm a big Elmo. And I'm like, all right, I, I guess that's funny. I don't know. He's going to be this big red thing. And he actually, believe it or not, may turn this into a little bit of a side hustle because he's had friends and family that have like little kids or like, oh, we should come to a little kid's birthday party. You could be like the big like size and like Elmo mascot. So he might turn I, this I, into a little bit of a side hustle. I was going to say, we could put him in Times Square as well and yeah. he could take photos with the tourists and, yeah. and get a dollar or two. Yeah, apparently some of his friends are like, they're going along with this. It must be something I don't quite understand with the kids those age, but they're like uh, doing a little throwback to Sesame Street at their age. is kind of like <laughs> funny in some way. I don't quite get it, but whatever. And Julia is going to be, uh, have you seen this dis popular Disney show? They did a couple of movies called Zombies. Have you heard this? It's I pretty, actually, actually pretty, it's like a Disney, like tween musical type thing with these like zombies. So it's these, check this out. It's werewolves zombies and humans that all coexist in this town and it's like they're all friends and it's a whole thing. they put three movies out zombies one zombies two and zombies three and it's like, anyway so julia loves it and so she's gonna be one of the characters from zombies and are her friends part of the zombie no, crowd as well they okay they didn't coordinate they didn't coordinate but it's pretty cool i maybe i don't know, maybe your nieces are familiar with it i don't know yeah i'll, I'll have to get into it or at least uh, i'll ask them at least about that yeah cool hopefully they'll also get a lot of candy because that's i know an important part of the day oh yeah i'm just i'm happy to give out the candy walk around a little trick-or-treating it's fine i'm hoping the weather holds up but halloween's always a good time I, i'm don't ask me to dress up i'm not a costume guy but i'm, I'm happy to go <laughs> along with everything else are you going to be at the door or are you going out with them my neighbor sets up a fire pit at the end of the driveway and we pull out some chairs. We hang out. We uh, have a few beers and we hand out candy to the passersby. Nice. Awesome. That's, what I, that's actually my favorite part of it. Don't tell anybody else, but that's my favorite part. <laughs> You'll have to give us the Halloween rundown next time we uh, we talk, but For sure. this episode is all about music and, and yeah. Ross, I know you are a big music aficionado. I love it. I love it. I remember getting into music when I was a kid. I think back to I have certain styles and when I was in like middle school, high school that really just like anyone else in your formative years really sticks with you. And that music, whether it was great or I just remember it being great, just built my my taste in different music styles. It's evolved as time goes on. I just appreciate appreciate good music. I, I'm not most styles. I'm not this guy that I don't eat up everything i'm not hip-hop doesn't really do it for me country music doesn't really do it for me i'm a rock and roll guy but i can appreciate the old stuff the classic rock the new stuff from when i was growing up even pop music today just fascinates me let me give you an example taylor swift right taylor swift is everywhere she is the biggest thing going so you know what i did i'm curious i go 
what makes it so good i listened to probably about half a dozen of her albums like while she, the, she was touring and like all yep. over the news i have to hear for myself what's the big thing and it's good stuff it's really it's good music. i like her newer things or early stuff man not so much but she puts out some good music and i can appreciate it it might not be my favorite but i'm all about music appreciation and so that's what that is you know who i got into mm. as you were talking about during the pandemic yeah i got into frank sinatra love yeah. him i mean it's classic. I love him yeah classic just such a relaxing i would pour myself a drink during the pandemic friday night with a book hit it after yeah. hit just yeah that's a great thing frank about it is that there's so much no matter how old you are there's so much music that came before you. I remember being in high school and I would go hang out with my buddies and we would dive into classic rock. So this was in the nineties and dating myself here. And we would go back and just listen to stuff from the sixties and seventies. And we would just, in addition to stuff that was current at the time, we would learn about, educate ourselves on classic rock. And that's how I got into it. And so there's still stuff even for you think about a kid today right college student high school student they can go back they can listen to stuff from the 2000s the 90s 80s you work your way back it's the same thing jared like i never really listened to sinatra let me just dive into it and learn about his music start with the hits and maybe i go a little deeper and that, that's the great thing is just there's just so much out there so much good music out there from whether it's our era or a prior era and you can consume it at will yeah, and we had a great conversation tonight with another music aficionado. Yeah, so we spoke with Larry Jaffe, and Larry is a journalist by trade. He's also a, an adjunct journalism professor, and he's also a, a writer, longtime writer about the music industry. We're going to talk about his book called Record Store Day, which I, I'm going to repeat what you'll hear in a little bit, but it was featured in the Penn State Alumni Magazine. And I'm like, well, sounds good. This is right down my alley. He wrote about Record Store Day and the resurgence of vinyl over the last 10 years or so. And I'm like, sounds great. I'm going to read it. And I read the book. And afterwards, we reached out to him and said, hey, we're, we want to talk to you. And he was happy to join us. Covered a lot of ground about journalism, about music, about the industry, music industry, that is, and uh, what he's done over the course of his career. And, and just a really cool background and a lot of cool stories he shares with us. So Jared, with that, we're going to put some records on here. We're going to drop the pin on the record. We're going to go spin some vinyl with Larry Jaffe. All right, let's welcome Larry Jaffe, a 1986 graduate with a master's degree in journalism. Larry is a journalist, communications professional, and a professor. Larry has written about cybercrime, pop culture, the media business, and most recently wrote a book called Record Store Day about the resurgence of vinyl records, which Ross actually read and thoroughly enjoyed. We'll get to hear a little bit more from Ross about his perspective. Larry is also a lecturer of journalism at Rutgers University after spending a decade teaching at the New York Institute of Technology, where he won the 2021 Presidential Award for Excellence in Part-Time Teaching. We're excited to have you on, Larry, and talk about your career, your writing, and also some music. Thank you. Really great to speak with you here, Larry. Um, as a fan of journalism and a fan of music, I admire the fact that you've made a career out of the former and found a way to be involved in the business of the latter. We'll get into the mu music business later on, but first, at what point did you know that you wanted to pr pursue a career in journalism? It was when I was a senior in high school and all the president's men had come out and I said, that's what I want to do. Not necessarily be a political reporter, but just, I'd like the whole idea of a newspaper or a magazine 
I would have been perfectly happy just being the rock critic <laughs> if that was an actual job sure. to have. Yeah. And in those days, it actually was. Now it's almost impossible. But so I knew I was going to be in journalism. I did always think about going to law school, but I didn't want to go into debt to, to be a lawyer. My, my daughter is now her, in her second year. So I'm living precariously through her. <laughs> and those late nights probably of studying as well, right? Right, right. So you have a ton of bylines, right? New York Times, Rolling Stone, Billboard, Huffington Post, among many other publications. You've also written about a wide variety of subjects, but found yourself coming back to the arts and to the media business when possible. Curious, how would you describe your reporting or writing style? And how has that style also allow you to be versatile in the, the subjects that you've covered? Well, I think... It, it goes back to being curious about everything. And I tell my current students this all the time, that although I have two degrees in journalism, that's not how I learned how to be a, a journalist. It was from the age of 16, reading cover to cover the New York Times on a daily basis, and also actually doing it and interviewing people. Once I got into college, I mean, only me and a, a few other friends were writing professionally while we were still at I, I, my undergraduate degrees from Hofstra University in Hempstead. I, I, I realized I always aimed high. That's how I made it into the New York Times. Uh, Rolling Stone, I just got lucky. I had met Ed Asner at a, a political fundraiser, and I said to him, I'm a freelancer. I don't have an assignment, but I'll get one if you would do an interview with me. Its show had been canceled. Lou Grant was canceled about six months earlier than before we met for the first time. So I knew I knew it was somewhat controversial. And in those days, I was still using a manual typewriter. Actually, typed ten letters. To Newsweek, Time, you name like the major magazines of the day. And I got nine rejections very quickly. The 10th was Rolling Stone. And, and in fact, Terry McDonald, the editor at the time, he called me and, and, and wanted to see if I wanted to do it. So I said, Don't toy with me. I'm a freelancer. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> he goes, No. He said, We were just discussing Asner and we were all too busy. Everyone on staff was too busy to take it on. And then somebody said, well, I just received this query letter. And so that's how it happened. It was perfect. Do you feel like you have a particular style though out there? Is from a yeah, I think writing-wise, it, it is conversational, but it's also journalistic. I never really attempted fiction, although I did read when I was a student, both at, I guess, in graduate school as well, literary journalist type people like Hunter Thompson. At Penn State, I was very lucky. I had a great writing instructor, Toby Thompson, who is still there. And I was familiar with Toby's work because I'm a Bob Dylan fanatic. And Toby wrote one of the first biographies of Dylan. So I had read sure. his book before I knew he was teaching at Penn State. And then I was lucky to take his course. And I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it made me a better writer being in his class. I like the point you made. I feel like it could go for almost any career, but especially in journalism, right? It's one thing to learn the, the, the textbook material. But, you know, as with any job, you're not actually going to get better at it until you're doing it. 
And I imagine you could write whatever you want until you're actually out there covering a real story and having that be published. And then I imagine your work as you go along, you're you're gaining confidence. You can tell that you're becoming a little more seamless to you. And to your point, that's how you get better. Also, I just told my my supervisor recently at Rutgers that my students would never be able to use chat GPT or any kind of artificial intelligence and right. do my assignments yeah. because they're so tailored to what's going on in my head. Right. I'm very confident that they, they couldn't cheat to get by. How big of a concern is that though? I, I'm concerned that my stuff is going to get ripped off. I recently started blogging for Medium about all kinds of topics. And I hear other writers that face this, that they feel they're being ripped off. Sure. Anything that's on the internet, right? You're at risk of that, especially right, yourself right. with all of these publications and bylines you've had over the years. So you worked for a number of publishing companies, right? You managed editorial production staff. So when you were a little more tenured in your career and you're working with, let's say somebody that was a little more junior in their career as a journalist, what was the important piece of advice or guidance you gave them? Again, the people that were serious about it at the time, how did yeah. you feel like, what did you share with them to, to help them along in their career? Be thorough, double check. Don't just like give me the first draft and say you're done. Really read it over, read it out loud. In fact, I do that and I'll catch things that if I just mentally looked it over, I wouldn't see. Every writer can be improved. And I was lucky early in my career, I had one editor who just showed me how I use too many words often and to consolidate like less is more. And mm -hmm. it, it really, I learned more in those like five seconds than I did four years at Hofstra, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so, and definitely made me a better writer. And there's other things that I do now is try not to repeat the same words and whatever I'm writing, just mix it up. There are other ways to say things. Talk to us a little bit about how you became an adjunct professor. I believe you originally didn't plan to go into teaching, but certainly- not at all, you yeah. You've yeah. had a, a great career at, at a number of universities. Yeah, so it was around 1983, and I, I wrote a freelance article for a magazine called The Press, and I saw it on a newsstand once, and they weren't answering the phone like six months after it was published, and I was, still wasn't paid. So I, I just randomly chose one of the names in the magazine. I think his article was in the page after mine. And he said he didn't get paid either. His name was Peter Coper. And he said to me, what are you doing? So I said, I'm looking for my next gig. So he says, you want to teach? And I said, yeah, where? And he says, Hofstra. I said, I just graduated from there three years ago. <laughs> so, so then a month later, I'm sitting in this interview with three of my four, uh, three of the four on the panel uh, were my former professors. And I had, I had good relationships with all three of them. So it was just total by accident. And so while I was there for a year on the bulletin board, I saw a, a flyer that Penn State was looking for graduate assistants. And this was at one of the periods of time when I was seriously thinking about going to law school. I really didn't know what a graduate assistant was or what it did. There was some description. So I figured I might as well apply because by that point, I was already published in the New York Times. I was already published in Rolling Stone. So I figured I had a pretty good shot. And I already had taught at Hofstra for about a year and a half news and feature writing. 
I was able to get the assistantship. Did you ever get that check from the magazine? No. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about baseball. Tough couple days for Ross here because he's a big Phillies fan, but I understand you're a huge baseball fan. Did you ever have the opportunity or interest to, to go the sports reporting route? I've done some sports reporting occasionally. It's more on the business side of sports. Um, in fact, I had interviewed the former uh, president of CBS Sports last year for Broadcasting and Cable Magazine. Through the 90s, 80s, 90s, I wrote a lot about the cable television business and ESPN, sports rights, and kinds of streaming when that started coming out. But the only time I ever actually reported on a game was at Hofstra. The sports editor, I don't know, for whatever reason, didn't want to cover the football game, so I volunteered to do it. <laughs> and it actually was a very exciting game in the last second, like a field goal won the game. But the ironic thing is now I, I actually despise football. So, <laughs> so what, no, I, I was teaching a sports reporting class at St. Joseph's College in Long Island, and the Will Smith um, – movie uh, concussion had just come out but instead of showing that i decided to show the documentary league in denial that the that the fiction film was based on and it was so eye-opening that the nfl knows that half of their players are brain damaged and yeah they've made some changes but it just showed me how the how football especially it's just about greed. I was also not only dismayed that the league would, you know, exploit these players, but so would the union. So I, I'll give you a, an idea of how my brain works. I heard yesterday in the news that the Olympics are going to, to have flag football and NFL players are going to be able to be on the, on the American team. You know what? Why don't you just make it all flag football at this stage? <laughs> you want to like... It you know, would be a lot safer. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I recently wrote a piece about that It was for Medium. It was titled, I wanted to play football for the coach, but now I hate football. And that, <laughs> that was a reference to a Lou Reed song, Coney Island Baby. But we'll segue into music eventually. But... I, I, yeah. I do want to... We're, we're getting there. Okay. Before we get into music, I do want to just ask, so who's your baseball team? Now it's still the Mets. I listened to probably half the games um, on radio like I did when I was a kid. And I would follow on the ESPN app, the GameCast, which was a little bit delayed. <laughs> it's from the radio. <laughs> so, but I grew up, it's interesting. I grew up a Met fan. When I was a teenager, I switched to the Yankees to piss off my father because I realized he brainwashed my brother and me to be Met fans. I rode the Yankees for a while, especially my college years when they were pretty great. And I switched back to the Mets in the early 80s, mainly because I was living on Long Island at the time, and most of my friends were Mets fans. And they kept on telling me about these guys, Strawberry and Doc Gooden. And, and I realized that they really did have something special. And I remember being at Penn State in 1985, and they lost like the last day of the season, like they didn't make it into playoffs, but they looked like they were poised to, to be a real serious threat the next season. And I remember actually in September, 
we had a blackboard in the graduate assistant room and I, I put the starting rotation and I was like, yeah, it, it, try to top that. Love it. As, as promised, we are going to talk about music now. We're going to discuss your book record store day in a moment, but first I want to talk about making vinyl, which you co-launched in 2017. Correct me if, it, if it, this is off base, the business to business networking platform that helps pr promote the resurgence of traditional record album, right? Is it like a platform or a consortium? Is that the best way I guess to describe it? It's principally a conference. So it's a yeah. networking platform that we brought the industry together so that no matter where they were on the supply chain, they could meet their customers or the future customers or suppliers. Um, it's interesting. I had pitched my co-founder, Brian Ekis, back in 2013. I, and honestly, I didn't know there was a vinyl resurgence. I did write a piece for the magazine I used to edit called Media Line back in 2002. And there was a, a producer for Sony who reissued, he, he produced reissued mostly CDs, but he started licensing for his own label Sundays, the Bob Dylan catalog, the Birds catalog, and would put them out on vinyl and, and mono. And he told me, he had no doubt back in 2002, this is actually in the book, Bob Irwin, that he had no doubt the vinyl was coming back. And I thought he was being ludicrous. I, I, I never really <laughs> thought anything that it could be possible, but he proved me wrong. <laughs> the book, I think the key to the book is actually the, the subtitle, The Most Improbable Comeback of the 21st Century. Because right. try to think of another technology that we did 50 years ago. That came back. We embraced right. right. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. exist. It's only vinyl. Yeah. The rotary phones? I don't think so. Yeah. No, hardly. So I mean, hang on, but we're going to get to the book in a second also. Before we get off of making vinyl, you mentioned in a moment ago, like connecting the, the suppliers with the shop owners and so forth. What are their like mission and goals? Like how has it been successful since it's launched? Let me give you an idea of what happened when we first started it. Sure. At the time, we knew there were 35 pressing plants in the world. And we had most of those 35 speak at our conference. You know, about six or seven were like the biggest plants in the world. And then we had a, another uh, panel that had about six or seven operations that had just started in the last five years. We didn't know was there was like another dozen sitting in the audience that were about to start their operations. Same thing happened the next year, like doubled the amount. So right now there are 200 pressing plants in, 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 throughout the world half of which are in the US. And what drives us crazy is the way that the media report stuff, but they don't do, this goes back to what we were talking about with reporting. Mm -hmm. They just basically repeat a press release, which by the way, has been discredited, Luminate basically admitted that their projections are just projections. And I knew this for a fact because last year they said that the vinyl growth was 4%. And we know that physically cannot be possible because we have a line, a direct line to all the pressing plants in the world. We know how much they're producing. Mm -hmm. And I, this actually came to light in 2018 when the RIAA had just issued their six-month report 
and I'm just reading from the press release and it says, well, according to this, 9.2 million units uh, were uh, distributed in the first half of uh, 2018. And they're yelling from the audience, those numbers are ridiculously low. <laughs> and then afterwards, uh, one of the uh, pressing plant owners, Steve uh, Sheldon, who had a, a company called Rainbow in um, Santa Monica, he said, I did six million on my own. <laughs> it just shows the stuff that's being distributed to record stores is being bought. Now, true, it's the most popular titles that probably move the most amount of units, like the sure. Mac rumor, those yeah. Michael Jackson, really, the Beatles. But if you look at the top 10 of last year, the, the top 10 bestsellers, seven of the 10 were like either millennial or, or Gen Z artists. They weren't just the classic rock type you know, stuff. So that bodes really well for the future. The Taylor Swifts and, and the Olivia Rodrigo's, they're basically the, the future. And my daughter is 25 years old. She loves vinyl. It's funny when it, she called me when she was in college and she said, are you still doing that vinyl thing? So I said, <laughs> yeah. She said, I want a record player. I know what I want. It's a Crosley. It's like one of those little suitcases. I know what color I want. And I was like, yeah. oh, I probably could get you something better than that. Right. She goes, no, no, exactly what I want. So, so two years later, she calls me again and she says, I think I'm ready for a better. Looking for an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. And her system sounds better than mine now, actually. <laughs> this may be a bit of a naive question and I don't own a record player. Is the sound quality that much better or different? Is that something that I could pick it, up? It's, between... it's all relative, really. So the Crosley doesn't sound that great, and it chews up the records. But the Crosley does have better models, actually. But it depends, to your question, it depends on how that record was recorded, how it was mastered, how it was pressed. It's such a complicated process that any little screw-up along the way can make a record sound not that great. On the other hand, when you compare it to a CD and do an AB test and, and you have a decent pressing, I th yeah, I think it sounds better. And I've done that actually. But I loved CDs when they first started. And in fact, I was at Penn State when I bought my first CD player. And I remember the first semester, I, I, I still was playing vinyl. Uh, we went, came back to Manhattan for um, Thanksgiving and I went to the new, then new Tower Records in the village. And um, I bought what I thought was the five LP set of uh, Bob Dylan's biograph. And I opened it up and there were three CDs. And I was like, surprise. <laughs> I, I was planning on getting a CD player, but I don't have the money to get one right now. That was like my first CD purchase. It's funny, years later, I wrote about the packaging side of the business and it was just a bad qc that ended up with the cds in the, the box and they misprinted it but and i recently actually got the vinyl biograph at a used record store there you go um, after all those years you finally got it no, no. <laughs> yeah no jared though i think just speaking as a in layman's terms i think there are a lot of people that do think that right like i don't know if it's just what people people of the, the boomer generation or whatever they grew up with grew up with records and they're like yeah they swear by it like this nothing sound tapes didn't sound the same cds didn't sound the same even highly refined digital streaming it doesn't matter what kind of equipment you have nothing sounds like 
vinyl and i'm sure you hear this also larry right there's people that just that swear by it no matter what yeah and i have like old vintage records booker t and the mgs from it was like 1969 i think and it looks beat up when you look at it but it sounds yeah. amazing sure yeah sure. I, yeah so i mean even like some of the the rca david bowie flexi disc that they called those sound great it, it right. really depends on the the actual press got it so uh, larry we are going to move on to your book now and, and bear with me on the next question is a little bit long here but I, I think it's important to build it up so record store day was released last year i actually saw the feature in the alumni magazine and just being a big music fan i, I was very curious and went and, and bought it on amazon i read the book and one of the several things that impressed me was the depth to which you were able to tell the story of record store day and the people that helped drive the effort as a quick synopsis, and I'm going to read this actually from, I've got the, the hard copy with me, and I want to read part of the back cover because I think it's important. Record Store Day managed to revive the vinyl format from Oblivion over the past 15 years with some of the biggest artists jumping at the chance to support independent record stores. This alliance and renewed camaraderie between artists and record stores set in motion the world's largest annual music event, Record Store Day. We're getting to the question now. What was the uh, motivation to tell the story more broadly? And secondly, I imagine that independent record shops being a tight-knit community, it was probably difficult to piece together the whole story given you had so many moving pieces, right? You had the store owners, you had the label executives, you had the musicians involved. So just, there's a lot there, but how did this all come about? How did, were you able to kind of knit this whole story together? It, it took a lot of work. I must've done at least 35, 40 interviews with various people. Um, and I then believe also, it. I mean, on the on the research side, uh, the Association of Recorded Sound Collections um, gave the book an award last week. I didn't even know it was nominated and it, the category was best research um, for general recording. The ironic thing is one of my colleagues at Rutgers at the Institute of Jazz Studies was the former president of this organization. I saw him yesterday and he was telling me about how the awards come about. He's not that active in the organization anymore, but he certainly knew the whole inner workings of the awards and things like that. So we both might go to Minneapolis. I'm definitely going to go to collect the award, but he said he might come this time too. <laughs> so, Fantastic. Well, congratulations. Uh, That's great. I love that. Yeah, to your point, it's almost like some of the articles you'll see from time to time, like they call it like the oral history of something, or oral history of a TV show or some event. And that's almost what I felt like when I was reading the book. To your point, amazed at how like the whole thing, it's like you spoke with all these people. First, it was like the gang from the, all the independent record shops, right? Then it was the executives and then it was the musicians involved. Then it's just the way it, you pieced it together was very well done. And it, it helped tell the story in a very chronological, methodical way. And, and I... To your point, I know that I imagined as I was reading it, that wasn't easy. And so I, I appreciate your experience. Well, I mean, it also had sort of an arc to it that yeah. it turned out that way. The book ends with the pandemic and how yeah. record stores had to adapt and learn e-commerce all of a sudden. We're going to talk about Penn State in a little bit, but I do want to touch upon your master's project while at Penn State, which centered on MTV's impact on the record industry and record buying habits of Penn State students. Let's go back in time, early, mid 1980s. Give us the synopsis of what you learned and shared as part of this project. Well, you know, it's interesting. I did some research of other academics 
who were writing about popular culture. And I had published actually, while I was at Penn State, two articles for a journal called Popular Culture and Society. And one of the pieces was actually, did, did some reporting about State College. I bought a used record of KTEL's greatest hits or something from 1971, I think it was. And I interviewed one of the local DJs at, at the radio station to talk about those songs in that era and things like that. So basically, at graduate school, I decided I really didn't want to focus on like heavy journalism, First Amendment topics and things like that. I had already given up the idea about going to law school at that point. Had I thought I was going to take that path, I would have done that. But, you know, so I figured I would make this fun for myself. So MTV was like a pretty new phenomenon at that point. It was only around for a couple of years. And then I figured around my Thanksgiving break and things like that, I'll do some interviews with record executives. Maybe I'll get some free records. And then I was taking a course in qualitative research with my graduate advisor, John Pavlik, who now is at Rutgers for the past 20 years. And it was really helpful because even my later media career, I learned how to write a questionnaire and get qualitative answers that were not skewed to whatever biases the organization was looking for, which is probably the problem with a lot of research. I remember being at, um, I can't remember the exact name of the record store, but it doesn't exist anymore. A few years ago, I actually researched this. It, it was like Ambrosia or something like that. And I still have a couple of the CDs with the, has the price tag <laughs> with the name of the store on it, I think. But, Anyway, I would stand in front of the, the store and hand out a survey and have the students fill it out. By that point, I was already being published in a, a magazine that was put out by Tower Records called Pulse. So I, I told the editor at Tower Records, Pulse, I was doing this research and it was part of my master's project. The reason actually why it was a master's project and not a master's thesis was because I was having a problem with my, my desktop computer. The software wasn't working properly and I couldn't get the citations right. And when you're doing a master's thesis, they're really sticklers for that type of thing. Sure. So I remember I, f I forgot how, I think I got three less credits for it, but I made up the three credits some other way. And so that they said, but you can't call the master's thesis. And it was all because of the citations and the software I was using. It was so ridiculous. But so, but anyway, I, I was able to get it published in a widely circulated magazine. So I was really happy about that. But at that point I had already, I knew right after I graduated from Penn State, I was going to be uh, working for a cable television magazine, which is one of the few places that I've worked at that's still in business, a multi-channel news, which I still contribute to once in a while. Um, and it was interesting when I first arrived at Penn State in 1985, the National Cable Museum was supposedly there at Penn State. It, it, <laughs> it actually turned out like a little showcase with a coaxial cable in it. It wasn't a museum of any sort, but <laughs> claimed that they were like the, the place where cable was founded, although there were other parts of the country that claimed that as well. It was the right time for me to be somewhere other than New York. I was just getting a little tired of. I needed a change of scenery, essentially. And I was really happy it was only a one-year program, actually. 
It's it's interesting though. I'm I'm curious what role and impact you may think MTV has today on the music industry as a whole, knowing that things have changed, no, right? Not, since, I mean, they mm. don't even play music anymore. Yeah. Well, that's the thing I've realized yeah. is that when when you teed up the question is like there's a whole generation of students listening now, like they don't know what it was. I remember coming home from school. I think I was like in junior high or high school. It was like Total Request Live was like must watch television. And if you wanted like the top songs, it was like you watched the videos and the artists made a big deal about making a video. There's no music videos anymore. This was like, that was, it was pivotal in how, and what you listen to based on, on pop music back then. There are still, there are music videos being made. In fact, yeah. a, a friend of mine on Long Island had like a, MTV TV for independent musicians type of, he basically copied the format and brought mm -hmm. it back. Some of them are performance videos. Some of them are actual concept videos. Sure. They don't have the production values. And that was actually one of the problems with the music industry in the eighties and nineties. It was just another way to screw the musicians because they would charge them $4 million back on the advance that they got because that's how much the video cost. And then it would make no money off of their album. And then also with streaming now, this is the great thing about vinyl. Musicians make far more money from their sure. vinyl release than they, they would ever from any kind of streaming. Right. The pennies that they make from Spotify or what have you. Yeah. So, Larry, we're going to move on here. I know you, you mentioned you had your huge collection, right, which you sold most of it. Have you you built that back up over the years? Your... Yeah, I, I have about 4,000 LBs now. Okay. While we've got you, I want to make have a little old school record store chat, right? So I'm going to give you the softball of all softball questions. Rattle off your top five records of all time. Yeah, that's pretty easy, actually. I've given a lot of thought. I've been asked it before. I, I would say Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, mm. Patti Smith's Horses, Velvet Underground, and Nico, Nina Simone, Wild as the Wind, and what else? Did I give you four or five already? I wasn't counting, but it, it, as many as you want to give us. <laughs> I, did, no, I actually wrote it down here somewhere. Okay. <laughs> Oh, that's Soul Mining, which was a record that came out in the 80s. And I listened to a lot when I was at Penn State. And okay. I still listen to it. Yeah. What do you like to listen to today? Are you like you're all over the map or you go back I'm to some of your old place. favorites? And in fact, yeah. yeah I, I, when I was walking around Harlem on Tuesday, there was this guy selling records on 125th Street. So I bought a Smokey Robinson Live, a Dionne Warwick, which I had Dionne Warwick, like all of her Grace Hits type of albums. But this had these amazing songs from the 60s that weren't hers, basically other artists like MacArthur Park and other people made them famous. So that, that was a, it was amazing. For 10 bucks, I couldn't believe I would get that kind of value. I got, and also I got a Louis Armstrong live. So it's all over the map. But at the same time, I, I think Olivia Rodrigo's album is better than the Rolling Stones album. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is very fact, good actually i actually listened to the new olivia rodrigo i will say i i love pop music and i'm always curious to see why popular music no matter when whether it's 20 years ago or now is popular i listen to it it's, it, it's excellent it came out the same day i think it came out the day after the rolling Stones single Ang angry and i pissed off a lot of close friends of mine by saying that it was a crappy single and i don't understand why they did it i hope the album is better I, the album, the Stones album, is better than I feared, but it's still just 
a bit above Bigger Bang or Steel yeah. Wheels. And both those albums, I think, are awful. But the, the Lady Gaga track is really great. What really disappointed me most about the record is there's not a song about Charlie Watts. And yeah. I, I, Mick and Keith, they just like basically checked it in. They, they're capable of writing a song. Maybe at 80 years old, they don't want to, but. Right. <laughs> Look, I, if they're interested to go put a whole album together, then they're, they can do this. They can make a song, right? <laughs> There's a lot I, of effort I there. Yes. They're working on nostalgia. My friend, yeah. Craig Braun, actually designed the tongue. And, and he posted on Facebook yesterday saying, how much royalties do you think I'm getting from this? Zilch. You know? <laughs> so. Wow. Well, let's transition a little bit, talk about your experience at Penn State. We're going to put you in the Lions Den, brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride. Remember to visit lions-pride.com to pick up all your Penn State fall sports apparel and gear. So, you know, Larry, you were, were only at Penn State for a short time, right, doing your master's. You mentioned it was a nice uh, little bit of a change of pace from being in and around New York City. Could think about back when you left Penn State, you went further into your journalism career. How do you feel like your time at Penn State prepared you for those early days once you left there? Well, like I said, I knew what I was going to do. I had a job to go to immediately. But I remember the, the year after I graduated from Penn State, watching the bowl game and Penn State won. And I was with my friend, my graduate assistant co co-worker Stuart Goldstein who's now the vice president of communications at William Patterson University in New Jersey when we realized that Penn State was going to win we both looked at each other and was like networking opportunities <laughs> he was still at the time still worked in public relations looking back on it no matter where you're at you just have to make the best of the resources there go to everything read the alumni magazine and see who uh, has similar interests of working in similar areas. I think that no matter where you went, that, I think that's key. As far as being at Penn State, my favorite story, I think, is when I first arrived and I had my car apparently in the wrong parking lot, which was <laughs> near the practice football field. And I, I go to my car, like I only, because I lived a few blocks away, I really had no reason to use the car anyway. I go there and there's like 10 tickets on the windshield. I was literally three feet away from where I was supposed to be, apparently. <laughs> you know, like there was like this little pole that basically right. had like graduates that way and undergrads that way or something like that. It was like so ridiculous. So I tried to argue my way to get that knocked down and they wouldn't budge. So I had $150 fine, basically parking and parking tickets. So as I'm leaving, after I, I tried to, to no avail, I, I had the car in the right place and I'm walking along the, the adjacent football field and I see a football on the other side of the fence. And I still have that football and it's still branded. It has a little Penn State branding thing in it. But it's funny, my son found it recently and he gave it back to me. So I look at that as, a, as my $150 souvenir from Penn State. There I was about go. to say, there you go. Right. It's a $150 yeah. football. Expensive you know, football. It's interesting also, the year before when I was at Penn State, my father came to visit me. My father was a New York City taxi cab driver. And we're driving around the campus at 8.30 in the morning. And you know what, you remember where the creamery was? Sure. sure. 
Who do we see? And now this is like the day after they lose that bowl game. Who do we see walking towards us? Joe Paterno. And I almost told my dad to let's drive over and see if he needs a ride because I think Joe grew up in the Bronx or something like but we didn't do that he looked like he didn't want he was like not in a good mood so we left him alone probably Um, not I did interview I did interview Joe actually for a a magazine article that I wrote while I was at Penn State for the magazine that I was working at prior to going to Penn State it was called fundraising management it was all about the the machine that Penn State had in terms of fundraising and alumni and how was state of the art at the time so joe actually uh, i did a sidebar about him giving back to the to the library yeah yeah so larry you mentioned it earlier you went to hofstra for undergrad and then you made your way to penn state a few years later if you could go back and visit with yourself right before you you started your master's program at penn state what advice would you share back then I think I would have learned how to edit video. I was always branded as like a print person. I probably would have done more radio broadcasting. I probably would have done, you know, podcasts, things like that a lot earlier. I did jump on the internet as soon as possible back in the mid nineties, but I just, I don't know. I think video was one one thing for my career that I, I probably should have paid more attention to. I always looked at myself as more of a writer. I've written scripts for films and things like that, mm-hmm. but I've not directed a film or anything like that. I, although I think I could direct like a news broadcast. Loved all the stories tonight, Larry. This was great. I got to say, I maybe didn't know all the artists and musicians you mentioned, but certainly a lot of great stories there. And as, as we think about kind of the theme, one of those themes that comes to mind is really your curiosity, right? Your lifelong learner, you publish stories in very diverse publications, and then really even to go down this vinyl route as well was really centered around your curiosity uh, to really pull out some of those great stories. So want to thank you for coming on the podcast and also congrats again on, on that award that you just won. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, just looking back on it, not that I'm done, but it goes by very quickly. We'll look out for that next book whenever it, it lands. And we always end the podcast with, we are. Oh, Penn State? Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.